You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. We're back again. Another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? Doing all right. Coming in here, doing the damn thing on a holiday. That's right. We don't take no days off. It's Labor Day, but here we are. Under Yeah, we should be sitting back uh, celebrating the creation of the eight-hour workday and some the, child the, labor laws. The minimum wage yeah. and whatnot. No, but we're here for you people. Might even be a violation of our collective bargaining agreement. That's right. We're going to have to check with our with our rep. Yeah. Wait, I thought you were my rep. <laughs> Am I the rep? Damn oh, it. Jesus Christ. No wonder our... our Workers union is so weak. <laughs> it is weak. <laughs> we can't even get paid for this shit. That's how weak it is. Wait, you kept telling me the check is in the mail. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we got your address. Oh. Don't call us. We'll call you. Oh, okay. You know how it works. All right. Are you sick yet, Ben, of the Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday schedule that the UFC is currently on? The Wednesday thing is fucking with my jujitsu schedule. Is it really? Yeah, that's oh. usually my night. I don't know what to do now. Now I got to, I guess, hang around, watch some fights and get paid for it. Sit around on the couch and swill beers and yell at the television like the rest of us, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and that's more of like a Tuesday-Thursday thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, ben, at this point, I've frankly lost track of whose music we've used between rounds on the CME and whose we have not. So this week, we're going to go back through the stacks a little bit and try to correct that mistake. This week's music comes from podcast listener Sean Madigan and his band Naked Women's Street Fighting League. See, I feel like we would remember that if That's we had That's what I thought, that. too. That was exactly my thought process. Also, so it's a, it's a league of That's right. naked women, right? So it's like a federation, I'm, yeah. kind of. Well, at least they're organized. <laughs> I can see it. You don't want them just having at each other in the streets haphazardly. No. That'd yeah, be a menace. You're right about that. And, uh, you know, if you like the stuff that you hear from NWSFL, which kind of makes it sound like it could be a lesser MMA promotion. Yeah. Oh, you're telling Are me. Are you going to order NWSFL 25? Spike TV had scooped that up in a heartbeat. Fists of Fury this that, weekend? How is that not on Axis? We'll put links to their stuff on comainevent.com. If you like it, you can go there and uh, find more stuff. As usual this week, the co-main event podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, Anthony Pettis ended the awkwardness of the Benson-Henderson era this weekend at UFC 164. Now we enter the era of custom-made suits and weird cartwheel kicks, and I don't think anybody's complaining about that. And in round number two, just wait until you hear Frank Mir's account of what happened during his knockout loss to Josh Barnett on Saturday. Oh, man. I assure you, any questions that you have about whether the stoppage was justified will be completely answered. <laughs> and in round number three, Wednesday night, Brazil UFC show on Fox Sports 1, 11 total fights, and actually three that look like they're worth talking about. So we're going to do all that, plus, are you fucking kidding me, and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Evan Whitmore, and he writes, Do you think the recent settlement from the NFL regarding concussion-related injuries could have any ramifications for the MMA world? With no fighters union, can there be ramifications? Should there be? Yeah, so Evan obviously is referring to uh, this past week, 
the the NFL settled the National Football League for our many yes. European and British and that's true outlying islands listeners the internationals the the co-main yeah. event international yeah listeners strong contingent strong yeah. contingent of international listeners well you know one of the things that I like about football American football that you just did when you went ahead and went with the full National Football League is how many times on on NFL broadcasts they needlessly use the word football. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things about it, where they're always like, oh, this guy here, he's just a good football player. Look at him here. He takes the football. He's going to carry the football right through the middle. He just wants to put his football team in a position to make plays, help make football plays Gotta out there. Got to protect the football. Carry the football out there. Oh, he loses the football. <laughs> anyway, so the NFL, the National Football League, for you internationals, uh, settled out of court with uh, – a, a with the players union and and uh, a group of former players who like over 4000 yeah, players over right? 4000 players who were who were suing the league uh uh for uh concussion related injuries that they had sustained during football that they ended up getting I think you might have it in front of you Ben but I think they got 756 million dollars as part of this settlement something like that uh they had originally asked for 2 billion uh, and uh, but we're sort of in jeopardy. I, I heard of having parts of their lawsuit thrown out, so they decided they wanted to settle, and the NFL wanted to settle because we're about to kick off National Football League season, and uh, a lot of football to be played. They didn't want every day for some former player's concussion-related sob story to be dominating the headlines. Uh, but you know, the, those people who are in the know here say that maybe the NFL got off a little bit easy. Yeah. And, well, and the thing is that I think would be difficult for. If this were something like this were going to take place in MMA, is for one thing, you just have a lot fewer people. Uh, there's just not enough people that for, kind of get that critical mass uh, of number of people to to go after the league or whoever's in charge. But also, one of the big things about this lawsuit was that they alleged that um, NFL teams had ignored signs of concussions, sent guys back into the game, cleared guys to play, even though they knew the potential long-term effects of concussions that, and for a long time that they concealed uh, that concussions could do these things to your brain and that had this long-term damage that a lot of players were suffering and dying from. Uh, basically, that they knew and didn't tell the players, told the players they were better off than they were. That seems like it would be a difficult thing like how are you going to sue the UFC when it's you know a state athletic commission that gives out the medical suspensions i mean the UFC has every once in a while like that situation with DeMarcus Johnson where right after his suspension ended the UFC signed him to fight like days later uh something like that but even then it's really tough to to put too much of that on the UFC because as Dana White likes to remind us they're regulated by the government man the all caps government yeah yeah you know and and I think you would run into a problem if you ever tried to do this kind of lawsuit with combat sports in general, just sort of like a common sense problem, even though I don't personally ascribe to this way of thinking. Like some people are being assholes about this NFL settlement, just saying, you know, well, these the guys who played football knew what they were signing up for. They knew it wasn't really good for their brain, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in, in football, you can kind of make the case that uh, our understanding of, of brain injuries and exactly how bad for your brain it is to play football has really, uh, you know, made a lot of, of strides forward in recent years. Uh, you know, I think in the past in football, we've had this this idea like, oh, a guy gets his bell rung. It's not yeah. that big of a deal. Guy shaken gets, up. Shaken up on the play. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, we're only now starting to comprehend exactly how much damage it's doing to guys' brains. I think just from us, from a uh, common sense standpoint, and like you're going to get the, the – 
the personal responsibility people would come out of the woodwork if you tried to to file a lawsuit like that about combat sports because I mean hell man you get punched in the head there's no way you looked at becoming a professional boxer or MMA fighter and were thought oh man I can do this and get away scot free yeah yeah no no way this could have potential negative consequences for my brain you're you're right that there would be a problem like that and uh fighters are independent contractors and not uh employees with collective bargaining agreements and all that like the NFL players have. So there would be a lot more hurdles for them to face. Mainly though, I'm just curious to see as the, the kind of the crop of fighters who were in MMA when it was a real sport, the Chuck Liddell's, you know, the guys who kind of came after that first wave um, and were in it long enough to, for a really good competition uh, to kind of shape up. I'm interested to see how they fare going into their 50s and 60s because we talk about how safe MMA is. But the truth is we don't totally know because there's yeah. just not enough like long, long enough timeline and enough data yet for us to, to really tell that. Yeah, and one of the scary things, and this I guess is where I get into my Labor Day spiel, uh, is that whenever you watch a report about this NFL concussion lawsuit – and and they talk to players, you inevitably will hear at least one of them say, look, I know that this thing that I'm doing is not good for me, but I'm I'm consciously making the decision to sort to sort of trade my future health for the future of my children and maybe even my children's children. And hell, if you're getting paid NFL money, maybe even your children's children's children uh, in MMA, you know, guys aren't making that much money. You know, there's a very, very few guys that are making that kind of money. Yeah, where not a whole lot of guys making children's, children's, children's money. That's right. That's right. Uh, barely making children's <clears throat> money. Barely making baby mama money. I would think for <laughs> uh, some guys. Uh, so you know, I mean, that's kind of frightening to think is that like these guys are doing this thing that we can we can just look at it and from the eye test tell it's not good for your brain. And not a ton of them, I think, are going to have millions and millions of dollars to fall back on and, and to leave for their families when they're done. So just something to think about. I yeah. guess. Not to mention, try going out and buying your own private health insurance when you're 55 and you know, your primary occupation, or hell, try or, buying if, it when you're 30 and you're a professional fighter, right. I would assume that the, uh, that the healthcare or health insurance companies don't line up to be like, Oh, you're a professional fighter. Awesome. We would love to insure you. <laughs> yeah. You're not actually going to be using this, though, right? Like you're just going to be like everybody else and sit on your ass and and not use our the 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 service that we provide for you. Anyway, the second question this week comes from Mike Moore. He writes: So, do we need a team alpha male guy to win a title before we declare Dwayne Ludwig is the most influential coach of all time, or can we just go ahead and call it now? I think we can all agree that no quote unquote new coach has done so much to change and improve the complexion of a team ever. And, you know, he's kind of right. And we saw that in action this past weekend when Chad Mendez went out there and pretty much wore Clay Guido around like a button in their fight at, uh, at 164. And I got to say, if you had come to me and said, Chad, pick one sort of aging fighter that you think is going to go join a team as a coach and, and if not completely turn around their fortunes, like improve their fortunes like tenfold and pretty much go undefeated since he comes into the into the picture i would not have chosen Dwayne bang ludwig right off the top of the list but maybe that shows more my uh uh you know ignorance ignorance than anything else wanton ignorance my wanton ignorance well i thought about this question and kind of ran up against the new coach uh qualifier that we're putting on there it is in quotation marks though so Right. Well, I mean, I, from that, I take it he's saying a guy who comes into a team, they bring him in as a coach, 
Um, you know, not a guy who's like a founding member or something or like a, one of the fighters right. uh, who becomes a coach. You know, a guy who comes in and helps everybody up their game. I was having a hard time just thinking of like examples of new coaches in general. Period. Yeah, we don't. When there's like a thin category to be. They don't get a lot of press when that does happen. When, no. when somebody brings in, say, a wrestling coach or somebody, we don't normally make a big deal out of it. Mostly probably because they're not former UFC fighters, I right. would think. And with awesome nicknames like Bang. Well, and which I, makes it easy to remember. I think that uh, it was kind of a perfect storm kind of thing with Dwayne Ludwig and Alpha Male because the Alpha Male team is. At first, kind of uh, unique in that it's a lot of uh, not a whole lot of diversity on that mm-hmm. team. A yeah. lot of small wrestlers, and so if I think when you have a team that where they're all kind of similar in size and uh, their background is pretty similar, it's a lot easier for one guy to come in who offers something different, um, and it happens to be something different that all of them need. Uh, it's a little tougher if you had a team of guys who came from all different disciplines for one coach to have that much of an impact on them because, you know, some guys might need wrestling help more. Some guys might need jujitsu help. Some guys might need striking help. This was a bunch of guys who, yeah, they got that whole taken down, grinding away at people. They got that shit down. Uh, it's the, the stand-up game they needed. And Chad Mendes did look fucking awesome. And I think yeah. you, you got to give Dwayne Ludwig a lot of credit for just how not only how much better uh, you know Mendes, TJ Dillashaw, uh, Joe Benavidez, and those guys think the world to Dwayne Ludwig, not only how much better they've gotten in striking, but how much more confident they've gotten in striking. Because now they don't need to go out there and just shoot for takedowns and plant people on the back. Now they know they can go out there and stand with them. Uh, and I think that makes a big difference. Man, it seems like at this point, if you're Dwayne Ludwig, you could start franchising this shit. You know, just go Popeye's chicken style with it. Go to a team, set up shop, bring your bring your Dwayne Bang Ludwig coaching kit with you. <laughs> pop it out of the box. Uh, you know, improve their record to like eight and zero over six months. Then you move on to the next town, man. Or Plan B, just open an actual Popeye's chicken because those do well. That would probably do okay. No, man, but I've just got this vision in my head of Dwayne Ludwig just living out of this, out of an RV, just driving around with boxes full of the Dwayne Ludwig coaching kit in the back, going from gym to gym, like an just old, changing people's lives. Old-timey, like, you know, display case, suitcase kind of deal, like the old traveling salesman would yes, have. exactly. Yeah. I like it. Speaking of things that they would totally put on Spike TV, by the way. <laughs> yeah. uh, the third question this week comes to us from Eric Sharp. He writes, so Bellator says, or Bellator, let me start that yeah, again. Yeah, just start all Well, it's, we've got a little bit of, a, uh, of an awkward phrasing here. So Bellator says that reports that Attila Vey was asked to sit out for the November pay-per-view were the result of a mistranslation in an attempt to put the... To put this to rest, they release a medical record for Vey dated April 15th, 2013. At the end of it, it recommends he not participate in the tournament for six to eight weeks. Is this evidence of some new brand of chicanery or on the part of Bellator, or are they just not good at basic math? You know, if it's not some skullduggery on Bellator's part, um, if Bellator really is totally guiltless and all this stuff, man, are they ever unlucky. You know, because doesn't it seem like some shit like this is always happening with Bellator? Yeah, well, this is at this point, it's just like a one thing after another kind of feel for Bellator. When when you see this news come out, and didn't it come out this at kind of like an awkward time this week? Like I saw it on Twitter just as we were sitting down to watch one of the fifteen UFC events that that took place this week. Uh, but yeah, when when you see the headline, it, it's almost like a this kind of stuff keeps happening to Bellator or. 
man, why I always getting fucked type situation. But also, like, you sort of believe it, right? You're, like, sort of conditioned to believe it just because of all of the other, uh, boy, for lack of a better term, stupid stuff that Bellator has done recently. You will end. To me, there's something weird about saying, uh, hey, that interview was mistranslated um, and also, um, you know, here, here's the medical report uh, proving like that he's injured. Kind of a uh, I, I didn't borrow that dish and that dish was cracked when you gave it to me kind of thing. Like the mistranslated taken out of context thing. We all know everybody loves to, to fall back on that. Taken out of context basically means didn't realize I was going to get in trouble for this. Uh, and the guy who uh, is the editor of the site that did the the initial story um, says no. Anyone who actually you know speaks Polish or Slovakian um, can listen to this and tell clearly what he's saying is that he's not injured. Um, and then you match that up with this medical report, um, which just looks kind of weird to begin with, and is from April. You know, thinking, yeah, I don't know. Why that should keep him from fighting in November? I mean, even if he was injured in the middle of the summer, how can you say necessarily that he won't be ready for November? It does seem like there's just there'd be too many coincidences there for their. It seems like a, a where there's smoke, there's fire kind of situation. And we know that Bellator loves them some King Mo. We know they wanted an excuse to get King Mo in there. Come on, yeah, and who could blame them? Uh, but really, uh, this is like one of those things where you, you you have to hope it's not true because if it is true. Did they really think that no one was going to find out about this or like that that this guy wasn't going to going to get disgruntled and say this to someone at some point? Like that's the I guess that's the, the like the knee jerk reaction that we have to to all of this conspiracy talk every time it comes up is like, man, you just couldn't do that much shit without people finding out about it somewhere. Uh, and I think this is a good example of it. Like if, if it turns out that this is this is a valid story, man. Dumb. Yeah. Just dumb. Also, if it is a valid story and if they just, you know, told them to sit down because they wanted to throw King Mo on there, you got to at least pay Attila Vey off, right? Yes, absolutely. You, you didn't pay him off or anything? You didn't give him any kind of incentive to, to shut up and not put your business in the streets? This is kind of damaging. And, and yet another, I think, example of how good the UFC is at controlling information and, and, and like spinning a story and stuff is that like this just would not happen to them. And if it did, they would just say, oh, he was drunk, you know, and he didn't mean to say that. Cough medicine. Like they did when Quentin Rampage Jackson did that interview where he talked about how awesome he felt since he's been on TRT. And, yeah, that the and UFC doctor gave him. A doctor from the UFC gave it to him or told him to go get it or something like that. And we still don't know if that, if there was anything there, it was a great big misunderstanding. It's a huge, it's a huge misunderstanding, but yeah, man, Bellator, what's up, dude. That's (laughs) just mind boggling at this point. My mind is boggled at this point, Ben, I have to ask, could it get any worse for Bellator? I have a feeling it definitely can. Well, that's the reason I asked that because now it totally will. Uh, the final question this week comes to us from Ian Hossack. He writes, have you ever seen more uns- anything more unsettling than Ben Rothwell when he started doing his, quote, ritual sacrifice dance <laughs> just before finishing Brandon Vera? I mean, that guy looks sinister enough when he's just standing still. When he starts flailing about from side to side, it's the stuff of nightmares. He reminds me of Sloth from Goonies, only without the redeeming feature of a kind heart. I don't mean to disparage Big Ben as he might be a lovely man in real life. Uh, looking at those soulless eyes, it just seems unlikely somehow. Now, I know you, as a former IFL employee have some personal uh, uh, back background with Ben Rothwell. He does have a kind heart. Yeah, from what you've told me over the years, it sounds like he actually is a pretty good dude. He is. He's a really nice guy. 
Uh, but more to the point of Ian's question, yeah, that thing that Ben Rothwell did before he knocked out Brandon Vera, one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in the cage. And it's almost like he beat Brandon Vera by freak out. Like, not necessarily Ben Rothwell's freak out, but like when he started doing that, Brandon Vera made this face like, oh, fuck, what's happening? What is going on? And then the next thing you know, yeah, it's and over. then and then he continued to freak out after the fight was over. That was scary too. Yes, absolutely. You know, but here's the thing with if we can talk for a second about the Ben Rothwell Brandon Vera fight. Yes, we can, but let's not do it for too long. Okay. Um the the thing that's starting to bother me is okay, we you know, we've gone off about TRT exemptions, stuff like that. Here's 31-year-old heavyweight Ben Rothwell yes. um showing up his TRT exemption. Um Never mentioned on the broadcast, as far as I could tell. But what is mentioned for a long time on the broadcast as they're coming to the cage is what great shape he's in, what a great training camp he had, how he like you know he changed his life, changed his body. You go on the UFC's website before this fight, and there's an article all about like his training regimen and his diet. Um, it seems to me like it's one thing when hey the fighters are doing this stuff, the UFC can't necessarily stop them, uh, so. You know, it has to live with it. But when you are going out of your way to highlight the dude's training regimen and not mentioning this stuff, it seems like more egregious. Like, like it's harder for me to ignore, harder for me to enjoy the fight. If I, cause it's just like you're lying to me. You're trying to say, this is why he looks this way. And we all know, really, maybe it could be because he got permission to use one of the most powerful performance enhancing drugs out there. That probably helped. Am I the only one who feels this way? Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of a situation where it seems like they want to have it both ways. Yes. I don't really think you can. It's like you either have to embrace the fact that some of your fighters are on testosterone replacement therapy and like sell it to me as a viewer as being legitimate, or you have to sort of not go down that path of, of you know, guys being in great shape and how good they look and how they've revamped all this stuff in their training. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, when guys like Vitor Belfort showing up looking like, the like action figure versions of themselves and and you talk about what great shape he's in and he goes out and does all this explosive stuff it's just sort of i mean it 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 it's asking it's opening up that line of of questioning right or or like begging someone to come along and and point out that you're not talking about it so it's like if you're going to if you're going to highlight those areas in in your broadcast and you want to make testosterone replacement seem legitimate like you might as well just embrace it, I guess, and talk about how guys are on it. Because yeah, when you don't mention do it, it, it makes it, yeah. Or in a perfect world, maybe guys wouldn't do it. But like, we talk about this all the time. You know, uh, we've said it on the podcast before, but just in conversation between us, like, nothing makes TRT seem more illegitimate than when guys don't want to talk about it or when you just ignore it on the broadcast. Like, yeah. if you want it to seem like it's not cheating, you got to talk about it like it's 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 the real deal and it's it's you know it's technically legal and and so hey man it's it's legitimate for these guys to do it they're not cheating they're just bringing their levels back up to normal or whatever and I, and I can appreciate that maybe the UFC feels like we can't just have every broadcast be the TRT broadcast especially when you see how it's starting to if you if you have heavyweights on the card it almost seems inevitable that somebody's going to have a TRT exemption uh, but it's like you know if. There's some dude who we all know got rich through like some kind of criminal enterprise and he just keeps talking about like his his work ethic and like his his sound financial planning. Like the more you talk or around it and try and attribute it to these other things, 
the more it, it starts to feel less like, hey, you know, an oversight or something that you don't want to dwell on and more like blatantly dishonest. Right. That's can, my problem. And you can only bring it up so many, so many times before one of your friends would be like, man, that's bullshit. You got this money from drug selling. <laughs> yeah. We all know that. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern that you want to air to the podcast for future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I keep going back and forth in my head about which division I think is the best in the UFC right now, and it's got to be either welterweight or lightweight, but I feel like one of the things that was the most fun about this main event of UFC 164 this past weekend is the fact that you had both Benson Henderson and Anthony Pettis in there, two guys who are not only elite lightweights, but two guys who feel like they're going to play a major role in the future of the division fighting each other both while they're in the prime of their careers and uh, at a time when you know that they've kind of got a score to settle and all of that stuff, irregardless of the fact that they're fighting for the title, which which just makes it it's it cooler still. But like, I don't know, man, I felt like uh, this this was a, a cool fight and it had a special feeling, you know, when they went in there and, 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 and got it on. And I suppose that's all you can ask for from both a main event and a title fight. But did you feel that same way? Did you while you were watching this go down where you were like, oh, this is cool. It's it's two of the best fighters in the best division fighting at exactly the right time. Well, first of all, I think you're sleeping on the featherweight division. Well, no, featherweight is also awesome. I mean, even if you look at this card, he had Chad Mendez uh, knocking out Clay Guida. Dustin Poirier and uh, Eric Koch, who was go- went out there with a tattoo that said Cokehead. Cokehead. I don't want sh- that to wait, be overlooked. In the shape of an alien head. Let's not forget to, <laughs> to put that out there. But that that was, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the people's fight of the well, night. Well, hey, f- how dare you? I sit here every week talking about how awesome the lighter weight class fights are. You know, don't make me whip my resume out and show you the part where it talks about how I used to work for versus.com. Okay. <laughs> I, no one wants that. No one does. Not even me. I don't even want to talk yeah. about that. Well, okay. But back to your question, you're right that this was one of the maybe rare instances of not only a title fight that felt legit, not like a title fight of convenience, even though it was, you know, a replacement challenger in there, but a, a fight that seemed like it had every reason to happen was happening at the right time, not too early or too late. Um, and you know, felt legitimately important. Like we were going to see something here determined about where the division is headed in the future. Uh, and I got to say, I think it's good for the division as a whole to have Anthony Pettis as its champion instead of Benson Henderson. And he, Benson Henderson was hard to get people excited about. Yeah, that's true. And I think we should talk about that in a second. Uh, the thing that struck me, the second thing that struck me about this fight, though, was obviously it ending by armbar in the first round. Uh, ironic, I guess, since Ben Henderson came out with his gi on and his black belt shorts. And they talked up how he had yeah. just gotten his Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt before this fight yeah. as if we have not previously made it well established that the MMA gods are vengeful, spiteful gods who cruel will 
have you lose by straight armbar if you do that, if you if you come out there with your black belt shorts on. But more to the point, I don't think anyone really expected this fight to end either that abruptly or via submission by Anthony Pettis. I think we were all kind of expecting a more drawn out, uh, lengthy affair that 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 would go, you know, if not the full the full five rounds, uh, certainly a kind of turn into a slobber knocker. I guess you could say we got a couple of emails this week from people saying that they felt like it was uh, underwhelming at the end because you know they just kind of went out there and then boom. Anthony Pettis armbarred him in the first round. It was over. Well, and the I, reaction was really weird. Benson Henderson's well, yeah. reaction was because yes. really, first of all, yeah, you couldn't see a tap or anything. It was a verbal one. You couldn't hear it on the broadcast. But also, like when he he, he acted like he got tapped out in training. Yes, he acted exactly like he got like he got tapped out in like in you know the first roll of the day. Like and he was just like and he kind of got up and like did a little bounce around. Like all right, I'm warming up. Let's let's yeah. let's go for no, real now. Yeah, exactly. He he looked. Like he was like, all right, let's let's go again. Yeah, you got me that time. It's like he was doing the Brandon Vera. Oh, you got me this time, Jones. <laughs> yeah. But the next time, yeah, that seemed like just initially a strange reaction from a man who had just lost his title. Yeah. I mean, I think, it seemed to be a little bit in shock, maybe afterwards. Yeah, I didn't. You could tell that it kind of set in for him during while well, they were actually wrapping the belt around Anthony Pettis's waist, and he started to make once again that face like he didn't want to cry in public. Uh, but let's, let's talk about this because it, it, in a lot of ways felt like a fitting end to the Benson Henderson era that he sort of reacted that way. Because like you said, at the top of the round, this is a guy who the MMA community at large, it felt like never really warmed up to his title reign. And I think that that happened because of a lot of different reasons. First of all, obviously because he was involved in so many really razor thin decisions that a lot of people, including myself thought should have gone the other way. And also because he kind of handled it a little bit awkwardly the entire time he was champion. And look, Ben Henderson seems like a super nice dude, and I don't want to sit here and bury him on the podcast. Oh, that means you're about to do this, that. At the same time, he did act a little bit awkward the whole time he was champion, like where he did the thing where he told the media he didn't really want to talk, and he would do all of his talking in the cage. And then, you know, after that one fight, he yelled at, yelled through the cage at them that he would do his talking in the ring and that stuff, which also his only clear cut uh, decision win while as champion. Right. And but it, I mean, that just kind of made it feel like he didn't fully either understand or embrace what his role was supposed to be as champion. And so, you know, he, he had all of these sort of like awkward moments, like with the, the thing with the toothpick and, and all of the close decisions and his like kind of, uh, unwillingness to embrace the role as champion. And then he goes out and he loses by armbar, and his immediate reaction is sort of like, oh, whatever, you know, let's, let's go. We'll do it again. And then he gives like the most technical, uh, breakdown of the fight possible in his post-fight interview with Joe Rogan, which I actually thought that actually made me like Ben Henderson more because I was like, all right, well, he's he's got a kind of a good attitude about it. He's already scheming about how to get back in there. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, and I feel bad uh, saying things like, well, Anthony Pettis is better for the division as a champion. He's better for the UFC. Um, you know, you can you can sell Anthony Pettis more. I mean, ideally, I guess those should not be our concerns. But like, as a guy who's going to sit there and watch the title fights going forward, regardless of who's the champion. I'm more excited to see Anthony Pettis defend that belt than I am to see Benson Henderson. I mean, it just feels like he brings a lot more to the table there. It gets, gets people more excited. He's more fun to watch. Uh, and like you said, from a media perspective, Benson Henderson, not super easy to deal with. Like he just, 
I mean, it's one thing if you go and you do the I do my talking in the cage thing if you're just knocking motherfuckers out left and right. But like if you're winning split decisions, you're not really doing that much talking like inside the cage. You're, you're, they're obviously – there could be more talking in the cage done at that point. Uh, but I mean now I, you got to look at his situation in the division and be like – do you just go up immediately to welterweight or do you sit around and hope Anthony Pettis loses or leaves the division? Because those seem like the only two options. You're 0-2 against the guy, the second one way less competitive than the first. How are you going to get convince the UFC to give you a third shot at him? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he says he'll be back, but very, very few guys upon losing their title actually get to get get it back. Like very few guys do get back. Um, and to your point about Anthony Pettis, I think you're totally right. Uh, things with Benson Henderson were always a little awkward. And now comes Anthony Pettis, a dude who, goddammit, feels like he was born for this shit. Like he's just been waiting to be the champion because he's got the custom-made suits, like I said at the top of the show. You were really – I don't know if if listeners of the podcast realize that you were really into Anthony Pettis' grooming. You, I mean, th- let's be honest. He's doing it Ric Flair style pretty much. <laughs> and you know I'm into that. He's got the expensive suits. He looks like he came from the barber. He looks like he came from the barber chair to the cage every time he goes out there. He comes correct every single <laughs> he time. Does. He does. The man has eyebrows that like women get their eyebrows waxed to look like that. And then, he, you know, he's going to go out there and he's going to throw crazy fucking cartwheel kicks and he bounce off the cage and he's going to tap out black belts. What's not to like? And then you can tell I'm enthusiastic. Yeah. Then he's going to go and make sure he gets his gold chain on before he even gets the belt. Like that's, you know, most important thing. Get your chain. Yes. And also punk out his brother, his <laughs> little brother, which I think was something we would all do if we got the chance to do it on pay-per-view television. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I feel like though now that he's champion, you got to upgrade that chain, man. Come on. Yeah, he could probably afford to do that now. But like we said... 401k, Roth IRA, <laughs> you know, make sure you're not spending it all on, on gold chains. Put some away for later because. Nah, don't listen to him, Anthony. <laughs> you're going to be champ forever. You... The money just keeps coming forever. All right. Well, let's, before we, we wrap up the round though, let's talk about this. I agree with you. I'm excited about Anthony Pettis as champion. I think that he has all of the tools to be a really good star for the UFC, but he fights in the most competitive division in the UFC and a division where guys have a really, really hard time keeping the belt. We've never really had a dominant champion. You know, we had uh, BJ Penn, who was a guy I think that at the time we all looked at and thought he would never lose at lightweight, but then he goes up to welterweight and messes around with George St. Pierre. Can't resist loses that siren a lot of, song. Loses a lot of that aura, comes back down, gets beat by Frankie Edgar. And then Frankie Edgar and, and Benson Henderson both had this the thing where they got involved in a lot of really close fights and eventually lost the title. Uh, so you've got a, a 155-pound division, which is full of sharks, frankly, new guys popping up every day trying to take your belt and uh, you've never really had a guy who's been able to keep it for that long so I guess my only question about Anthony Pettis is is he going to be capable of holding on to the belt long enough in order to become a big time star well first of all can we agree that TJ Grant should be next I yes. know it's it's fun to talk about the Aldo super fight thing it is year of the super fight and it's running out rapidly uh, but God damn it, give TJ Grant his shot. And the guy should, you know, the lightweight champ should defend the belt at least once before he starts talking about moving on to take on champions from other divisions. Yeah, I and mean, it's possible that the UFC, A, feels like it has a marketable fight in Anthony Pettis versus Jose Aldo, and also 
well, hell, man, they told us this was the year of the super fight. They haven't had any yet. It's possible they feel a little bit of pressure. Uh, they need to have at least one damn super fight before the end of the uh, end of the year. But you jumped the gun a little bit on my are you fucking kidding me for this week. But oh, no. Since you did, we might as well segue seamlessly into the <laughs> okay. are you fucking kidding me segment of this week's podcast. And Ben, this week... Just like you said, my are you fucking kidding me is that the ink isn't even dry on Anthony Pettis' win over Benson Henderson yet, and it already feels as though we're laying the groundwork to screw TJ Grant out of his lightweight title shot. Uh, you know, as you just said, a lot of the talk here headed out of the, the Henderson fight is about Anthony Pettis fighting Jose Aldo and, and Anthony Pettis challenging Jose Aldo after he, immediately after he wins the title. And then you've got the UFC president, Dana White, comes out and he sets the trap by saying, yeah. <laughs> that Jose Aldo's management is making it look like he's scared of Anthony Pettis and of scared, course, homie. of course, because they're fighters, Anthony Pettis or Jose Aldo's management immediately plays right into Dana White's hands by responding by saying, no, we're not. Yeah, <laughs> we're not scared. We'll fight him any time. And, you know, we said this weeks ago when the conspiracy theorists first started postulating that Pettis would step in for Grant against Henderson. Now we all know how this works. If Pettis goes down to have a super fight with Aldo, the delay is going to make it. So TJ Grant is going to have to fight somebody else in the, in the interim. And you know, he's going to lose that because that's how it works. <laughs> so this week, man, are you fucking kidding me? Just give TJ Grant his lightweight title shot already. Kidding me? Are like, you fucking kidding me? Uh, like you said, somebody on my Twitter pointed out that Dana White basically just incepted Jose Aldo. <laughs> that's that's how exactly how it works. Uh, my are you fucking kidding me goes out to Soa Paleli, who, uh, Chad, as you I'm sure saw in the Facebook main event, um, beat Nikita Krylov kind of by TKO due to neither guy could really lift his arms anymore. Apathy, I think it says. <laughs> if you look up his official record, it says win, TKO, parenthetically, apathy. Wasn't a great fight. No. Both guys got pretty exhausted uh, and yet somehow made it to the third round, uh, way up there on the Coleman Index the whole time. Uh, and afterwards, uh, so the Hulk uh, took to his Facebook page to explain that he had broken a rib, uh, just before this fight, didn't want to pull out of it, uh, so got in there anyway and hurt it almost immediately, which then made it hard to breathe and you know made him a lot more tired than he would have been. Um, but in explaining this, he wrote, quote, Nothing was going to stop me from stepping back into the octagon. I just needed painkillers to get me through the fight or a quarter zone injection. That is spelled quarter as in the coin and zone as in Z-O-N-E. A quarter zone in injection. Dr. Gordon advised not to go with the quarter zone injection as it would hinder my ability to feel any injury if it was caused during the fight. Quarter zone. He means cortisone, I think. I hope, because I've never heard of a quarter zone injection. Well, that at least it sounds like it's not too bad for you because it's it's just a quarter zone. It's yes. not the full zone. Yeah. Not, I mean, even half a zone would be rough. Yeah, that might set you back, but it's just a quarter zone. Ah, no big deal. You probably drive home after that. <laughs> yeah. You fucking kidding me? <laughs> Quarter zone. Come on, man. Uh, now Krylov, his nickname is Young Al Capone or Al Capone. I think it's just Al Capone. That's a just an awesome nickname. Now, see that one? I feel like I know this goes against exactly what I was saying about the guy being Ozzy Osbourne. If your nickname just is the entire like name of a famous person. Somehow you get away with that, I think. It kind of makes it criminal that his theme song is not Young Al Capone by Rancid from their second self-titled album, I think. 
Yeah, that's that's what you want to seize on here. No, the thing I would like to seize on is that when he wore that fedora to the weigh-in and Dana White just couldn't even, he couldn't even hide his disgust. Like he looked at him when they went over to do the stare down like, man, don't get too comfortable. And you're our Facebook main event. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, in the co-main event at UFC 164, the war master Josh Barnett came storming back into the UFC, stopped Frank Mir in the first round, and a bit of a controversial stoppage. I want to start us off here by reading to you a quote from Frank Mir, who describes the ending of the fight thusly. Quote, I took the knee, and I remember going, shit, I'm in a bad position. So that's why I dropped my other knee out from under me, so I could drop to the ground and make sure I didn't take a second one. I didn't belly out. I didn't flatten out. I actually tried to redig, redig my underhook so that I could get a single. That's his description of what happened after he was kneed in the head by Josh Barnett? That's, if that's what Frank Mir thinks happened at the end of that fight, it was stopped on time. Absolutely. Because that man suffered brain good, damage. Good and, and justified stoppage because... Yeah, when you hear from the loser of the fight and he just clearly has no idea what had what what had happened yeah. uh during the the end game stage of the fight, I got to say pretty good stoppage by the referee even if he's taking a lot of flack for it and and the UFC president went four exclamation points on Twitter on saying that it was a ridiculous stoppage. I don't know, man. I always come from the the point of view that if you don't want to get your fight stopped. Don't get kneed in the head and then flop onto the ground. No, like didn't a you? Sack he, of dirty laundry. That's he dropped his. That was strategic. He dropped yes. his knee out from under him to avoid taking another. Yeah, knee. you can clearly see that if you go back and watch the replay. That while in the process of tumbling to the mat like a sack of potatoes, it's like a dirty Frank laundry, Mir was trying to swing a very strategic underhook <laughs> in there in order to nullify Josh Barnett's uh, offense. Which, uh, you know, had it worked, would have been a really interesting strategy. It's the uh, just act like you got knocked out strategy in order to win your fight. Yeah. Surprised we don't see more guys go for that. Yeah, well, maybe we see why now. Uh, I I was a little bit upset at how many people used the, but look, Frank Mir's comeback submission wins over Noguera and Brock Lesnar. Like, they use that as evidence that, like, well, hey, if Frank Mir has breath in his damn lungs... You cannot justify stopping the fight because, hey, he had a couple come from behind submission victories. I don't care about that. I mean, what do you want the referee to do there when he sees the guy get kneed in the head and just flop right down to the mat? Like, that's a reasonable uh, assumption for him to think, that guy is hurt. That guy is unconscious. That guy is not in the fight anymore. I mean, he was able to pop back up afterwards. But if you're the referee and you got to make a split-second decision there, uh, you know, hey, he Sure, he could have let him go a couple seconds, but it looked like Barnett is just going to put some some mean, just hammer fist, big ass paws on his face, and and it's only going to get worse for him. Uh, I don't know. I'm a little disappointed to see that kind of take over yeah. the, the story of that fight. One of the things that I feel like is really unfair whenever we get into these discussions of the stoppages, and and 
obviously there are bad stoppages in, in MMA, but we so oftentimes use information that was not available to the referee at the time <laughs> yes. to be like, oh, that was a terrible stoppage. Look, Frank Mir was able to stand back up and, and protest it, you know, furiously after, after it happened. Well, fuck, man, the, the ref, the only thing he's got to go on is the fact that Frank Mir, a, a heavyweight, got kneed right in his head by another heavyweight and then collapsed like a dead person. Like, <laughs> you know, like that's all that dude has at that moment. He can't fast forward and watch the reaction and then go back and say like, all right, well, I'm going to let Frank Mir get punched twice more than before I stop it. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about Josh Barnett here for a second. Cause war master is the war, the war master who comes up by the way, um, has maybe the greatest sponsor banner we've ever seen because yes, it's the, the barbarian cartoon drawing of Josh Barnett. I really hope that this becomes a, a trend that instead of the stupid thing where guys have like photos of themselves with their arms crossed on their sponsor banner, because especially we see it when you're standing in front of it anyway, so we already know what you look like. If everybody had like an illustration of themselves um, in some like fantasy world setting on their sponsor banner, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. And that is where Josh Barnett is one up on the competition as usual. And let's not also forget about the awesome Josh Barnett t-shirt that Eric Paulson was wearing while they came down to ringside that looked like something that you would buy at the merch booth from Ozfest in like, you know, 97 when you went there to see man of war or whatever and had, and bought this t-shirt. What did it say on the back? It said, Something is the is it? Did it say death is the currency of victory? I believe that is what it said. Something like that. Which I'm really that's yeah, yeah something something on that. It's vein. better than the bad boy logo. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, yeah. By the way, uh, Eric Paulson is a hilarious and weird dude uh, for MA fans who don't know and uh, longtime uh, bro of, of Josh Barnett's. Uh, also, he's the one who, uh, when we went shopping for a jacket with Josh Barnett in Cincinnati, um, started telling me and the salesman this story about how he choreographed fights on Baywatch. Awesome. I would yeah. tell that story, too, if that was true about me. Yeah. You uh, know, Josh Barnett took some flack for wearing the tiny Valet Tudo shorts into the cage. But as far as I'm concerned, that shit just completes the look. Like, you're going out there as an old school brawler. Well, very skilled brawler uh, with a barbarian on your on your banner and your your corner man wearing a heavy metal T-shirt with your name on it. Yeah, man, it's cool with me if you want to wear the Valet Tudo shorts, because that's just like it's part of your gimmick, man. Yeah. Like you'd rather see Josh Barnett go out there with a knee length pair of dopey ass uh, uh, board shorts. And no, I don't want to see that. Let's be real. Josh Barnett is not going to like look good in any, you know, he doesn't have that cut physique. He's not a Czech Congo, doesn't look super spectacular getting off the bus, as Chad Dunnis would say. Looks the part. You know, he he takes his shirt off, and it's like a, it's a Will Ferrell sketch, kind of. Uh, but then he just goes out there and does the damn thing. You know, so, hey, he might as well just throw aesthetics out the window at that point. Yeah. Well, now that we've done uh, six and a half minutes on everyone's appearance, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the ramifications of this fight. For Frank Mir, he's lost three in a row now, albeit uh, all of them against pretty top-level guys, Junior Dos Santos, Daniel Cormier, and Josh Barnett. Uh, before this fight, Dana White was talking about how he wouldn't be surprised to see Frank Mir walk away if, uh, if he ended up losing this fight. Obviously, he did, but in a way that kind of gives him that fighter's out to be able to say, you know, I had him right where I wanted him, yeah. uh, if only 
only I hadn't been suffered to become victim of this terrible stoppage. What strike. now for Frank Mir? I mean, he's talked in the past about going to light heavyweight, but that just doesn't seem really possible uh, given the fact that one of his legs appears to weigh, you know, 190. So I don't think he's going to get down to 205 anytime soon. Does Frank Mir have a lot left? Is he, is he, does he have what it takes to stick around the heavyweight division? Or what do you think would you like to see from him? You know, I would think this would be the point where Frank Mir should consider seeking his fortunes elsewhere. Uh, because, you know, and I, we talked about this before, how you can kind of do this to any fighter if you want to go back through his record and, and pick it apart. But, okay, he's lost three in a row. Then he has that one to Noguera where he was basically knocked out and got the submission. Uh, before that, he out-wrestled a uh, Roy Nelson who claimed to have pneumonia after that fight uh, in a pretty boring decision um before that was the extremely boring fight with crow cop where he got the knee there at the very end but dana white was so displeased with it didn't even give him the knockout bonus even though his was the only knockout uh and before that was the knockout to shane carwin and before that choking out check congo which let's be honest not super impressive so that's a pretty good you know three-year stretch there where not a whole lot of awesome stuff to draw on if you're frank mir you know you can make the argument that in that time that, you know, where he actually had three wins over three known heavyweights and a title shot, that that was kind of overachieving for him, uh, considering how he was fighting there. So I don't know if he stays around and doesn't go down to fighting, you know, the, the like lower tier heavyweights, which I don't think you can really do with him at this point. Um, if he has to keep fighting those tough guys, I just think he's going to keep losing. I, I don't know if he has that much left. Yeah, wow, you just did make it seem just bleak yeah, for Frank Mayer. I did. I mean, again, you can kind of you can do that to most people. You... Yeah, you can. And let's do it to Josh Barnett because okay. uh, it's only fair because Josh Barnett now is sort of the exact opposite position that Frank Mir is in. We we talked last week about how this Frank Mir fight would be a good litmus test for him coming back into the UFC for the first time in a decade. Uh, obviously, he passed and passed really, really impressively, I thought. And now he's won 10 of his last 11 fights. At the same time, though, if you start to go back through those fights, just like we talked about last, last week, you can kind of do the same thing about Josh Barnett's wins and say there's a lot of Nandor Gulminos and uh, Geronimo Dos Santos and uh mighty mo fights on on this in this last 11 fights that Josh Barnett has won so great for him to get back into the UFC great for him to beat Frank Mir but but uh also what do we expect now moving forward from the 35 uh, year old warmaster well you know i think that in retrospect his decision loss to daniel cormier looks a little better uh that you know we know that now that that Cormier is going to be a factor in whichever division he, he ends up sticking around in. Uh, so, you know, if that's your one recent loss, I don't think that looks too bad for you. Um, at the same time, it does make it seem like there's got to be a, like if, if Daniel Cormier goes out there and beats you, uh, do, would you fare any better against Cain Velasquez? Probably not. But I think Josh Barnett gives anybody in that division a fight. I mean, I think if you put him in there against Cain Velasquez, he's probably going to be there all five rounds. You know, he may not win that one. Uh, but, I think his his particular skill set uh, is a problem for a lot of heavyweights because he's big enough that you're not going to push him around, and yet uh, you know he's not one of the towering slow guys who just looks to land one bomb. He can submit you, uh, he can stand there and strike with you, and he can out wrestle you. I think that that he is a problem for just about anybody in there. Yeah, I think so too. I think he's a he's a good addition. Um, 
obviously a guy who knows how to talk the talk and then gets in there and uh, and backs it up certainly during his recent career more often than he has has failed um and i think you know if he can continue to distance himself from these from the sort of cloud of performance enhancing drugs that has has dogged him since his two positive tests that he could be a, a good and uh and you know contributing member to the to to the heavyweight division we'll just have to see how it shakes out you know you had guys yeah, Ben Rothwell calling out uh, Travis Brown, right? Is that what happened after yeah. after his fight? And then Travis Brown kind of LOLing in response. <laughs> so you know, Josh Barnett miss probably missed an opportunity to call somebody out after this fight, since that's what we were all doing, uh, both on the prelims and on the uh, on the main card. Uh, but yeah, I think it'll be it'll be super interesting to see what happens with him as we move forward. Uh, you can never never have too many heavyweight uh, contenders because God knows you need them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, should we move on? Yeah, let's let's. Do you want to just go to round number three, or you you express some interest in doing tips for the well-rounded fight fan this week? Well, you know, I have a tip for the well-rounded fight fan. Go for it. I know you don't because your life is empty and and empty and miserable. Just a husk. That's right. Uh, and you don't do anything. But I've recently been reading uh, the work of Nelson Algren, whose uh, book of short stories, The Neon Wilderness, is fucking fantastic. And it's the kind of thing where I. For one, can't just believe that no one told me about Nelson Algren sooner, especially because once I get to the point where I realize, wait a minute, you have a short story about a hooker who marries a Cherokee prizefighter? Why? People people know me and know what my interests are. <laughs> Why has life been keeping that from Why me? would they not have told me about this much, much sooner? Because obviously that's right up my alley. And he has a ton of stories like that that are awesome in this book. And, uh, I mean, if you're like a fight fan, Nelson Algren has some of the best fight fiction around. And he has several uh, several of his short stories are essentially fight fiction. Um, so if you like reading stuff, if you like awesome stuff, if you want to go back and uh, read some, some literature that you didn't hear about in school, probably because it was just too fucking awesome, then I recommend Nelson Algren's The Neon Wilderness. The Neon Wilderness by Nelson Algren. Uh, my tip for the well-rounded fight fan this week is the series of detective novels by the author Benjamin Black, uh, which is the nom de plume of the award-winning novelist John Banville. Uh, he's got a detective novel series about an alcoholic uh, uh, coroner in, in 1950s Ireland that is just awesome. The first book is uh, called Christine Falls. Uh, and I'm sure that you could either find it at the library or at uh, your local bookstore. There's no bookstores anymore. I think that there's five books in the series now because one just came out uh, and I have not read it yet. But uh, I don't think that I've recommended those on the podcast before. If only there was a list somewhere where I could look <laughs> to confirm that. But, uh, you know, since you put me on the spot here and uh, decided to call an audible and go with this, I'm going to go ahead and recommend those. Start out with Christine Falls by Benjamin Black. Alcoholic Irish coroner, huh? That's right. Now well, just playing right to the stereotype. Look, man, you're the one who just recommended a, a short story about a hooker marrying a prize fighter. It's awesome. <laughs> it sounds awesome. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, 
UFC Fight Night 28 is this Wednesday uh, at the uh, Minihino Arena in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Nailed it. Crushed it. And, uh, you know, as we've come to expect from these midweek Brazilian fight night cards, there are a lot of Francisco Trinaldos on this card. A lot of Peter Hallmans. A okay. lot of Tor Tronigs. Marcos Vinicius. Edmilson Souza. Which I, that's actually an awesome name. Ali Bagatinoff. Lucas Martins. Oh, I nailed that one. That one was <laughs> good work. That one was easy. Good work. Uh, more to the point, though, Ben. Your, your top three fights on this card actually seem interesting and uh, and and worth our time. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about those. The main event, I guess, is uh, Glover Tashira versus Ryan Bader in a fight between um, you know one guy and Bader that that we thought could have been a contender. At the at light light heavyweight, but has had a rough go of it here and there uh, during his career, and and at this point, kind of seems a little bit like an also ran. And then you got Glover Tashira. I think the guy that most people are expecting to come out and get the W in this fight is a guy that uh, we well, certainly no shortage of expectations for him. Yeah, you know, to the point where, especially in Brazil, if I'm Ryan Bader. And they come to me and say, yeah, we want you to fight Glover Teixeira. This guy everybody's talking about as might be the uh, most legitimate challenge to John Jones. And we want you to go down to Brazil and do it. Man, I I just had a thought of a thing that I have to do. <laughs> You're booked that oh, night. Oh, ah, you know what? Man, that's my cousin's uh, wife is getting married that weekend. So, pff, sorry, man. I, I'm in the wedding and everything. They already got the suit. I just can't do it. You know, maybe I'm sure that would work. Maybe some other weekend. I'm sure that Joe Silva would love to hear from hear that excuse from you. You know, uh, right now, Glover, Glover, I think it's Glover. Yeah, Glover. Okay, Glover just sounds cooler though. Uh, Tashira, I think, is is better than a four to one favorite according to most people, especially down there in Brazil. I still, I don't know if we can blame matchmaking or whatever, but. If you're an American or a European or a Canadian fighter and they call you up to go down there to fight a Brazilian in Brazil, the odds are against you. Like, it just doesn't go well for most people. Yeah, uh, and, and as we all know, Glover Tashira has not lost since March of 2005 in his fourth professional fight when he lost to Ed Herman. And we were at uh, that motherfucker. We, we were there. Uh, Mount Hood Community College. For the sport fight light heavyweight title. Since then, he's just been on a tear. Although, uh, much like we just said against Josh Barnett, or about Josh Barnett, the, a lot of his competition in his last you know four fights in the UFC, not necessarily top drawer competition. He beat James Tahuna. He beat Quentin Jackson, you know, uh, kind of at a time when everyone was doing it. Uh, Fabio Maldonado, Kyle Kingsbury, and and uh, then before his UFC debut, he beat Rico Rodriguez. Uh, and I don't know, man. He seems like a really serious contender. He's got gr- good wrestling. He's a big, powerful guy uh, who obviously can knock you out with his fists. Um, but, but are we getting a little ahead of ourselves, yes. as we so often do? Yeah, absolutely we're getting ahead of ourselves, because that is what we do. We're just going to do the thing where everybody's going to talk about how Glover Teixeira is the next big thing, and then if he loses, everybody will be like, I knew it all along. You guys are a bunch of suckers jumping on that bandwagon. Of course we're going to do that. that. I mean, I'm resigned to that at this point. I'm not even mad about it. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, man. We're, I, I would say 
in a perfect world, we would still be a couple few fights away from, from Tashira getting a shot at the title. I mean, he beats Ryan Bader. It's not like that's going to rocket him to the top of anybody's light heavyweight top 10. Um, it would be nice to see him in there against a couple of guys that you feel like are legitimate contenders in the, in the 205 pound division. But like we said, people have been, uh, really, you know, talking, talking him up and are excited to see him fight John Jones. So do you think if, if Jones gets by, Alexander Gustafson in his upcoming fight that 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 Tashir is next. Yeah, and I don't even try and look that far ahead anymore, especially with light heavyweight, and especially with with John Jones, where there's always the temptation to see him go up and wait or see him take on a champion from another weight class. You know, I I could see how this this to me feels like a kind of a placeholder fight for Glover Tashir because you're right that it seemed like for a while everybody's been saying okay but how will he do when you put him up against that next level of guys and then they don't really I mean no offense to Ryan Bader but he's just not that guy anymore where a win over him vaults you into title contention you know there was a time when people were kind of waiting to see what Ryan Bader would develop into and now it seems like we kind of know you got to give him that give Glover Tashir the opportunity to face one of those guys because it, it's not fair to the guy if we're all like, yeah, but he hasn't he hasn't beaten anybody. He can only beat who they give him, right? You know, uh, but the one that I am actually ready to be disappointed by, but also super looking forward to, is Yushin Okami versus Jacare. Yeah, I mean that's the kind of fight where I feel like uh, it's the UFC being like, where we know that this has the potential to end up being incredibly boring, but at the same time. Let's fucking find out what Jacare is dealing with. Yeah, um, and Jacare obviously has been on a tear since coming into the into the into the UFC. But at the same time, Yushin Okami ain't no joke. He's he's really put it back together after he had back to back losses over Anderson Silva or against Anderson Silva and Tim Boach. Uh, but then you know came back strong and 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 beat a trio of guys including Alan Belcher and Hector Lombard. So he's a guy who comes in bringing the his sort of smothering wrestling style and and is very physically large and strong for the division so it'll be interesting to see how uh jacare handles that you know he's jacare obviously is a dude who appears to be one of those really world-class athletes even though i don't particularly like the the term world-class like he's a dude who appears to be the kind of athlete that Every time you see him go out there, he's going to be like ten times better than the time you saw him before. Yeah, and we've certainly seen strides in his in his striking game. So it'll be interesting to see what he does, man. If he is unable to take Okami down and can stay free of the sort of quicksand uh, offense that that Okami brings, where he just you know roughnecks guys up against the cage, I, I, I'm interested to see what happens if Jacare is able to to show off some striking or or able to catch him in a submission uh, as he's done to so many guys along the way. And uh, it'll be interesting, man. It, and, and you're right. It could turn out to be a real snoozer. Yeah. But, you know, I like that matchmaking here because it's it is. And by the way, he, he's only had one fight in the UFC so far. So the tear is kind of it's more strike force. Uh, we won three straight there at the end of Strike Force, uh, and then choked out Chris Camozzi, uh in his UFC debut. But it seems like now, with a guy like that, with who's he has great jujitsu, great submissions, you're waiting for him to develop that second thing, whether it's wrestling to get the fight where he wants it, uh, or whether it's striking so that you know he can hold his own on the feet and make other people try and take it to the mat. Uh, 
and it seems like it's going to be striking with him. His 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 hands have really come along. He seems to have some real power. Uh, and if he can continue to develop at that pace, you wonder where the hell the guy could get. I mean, it, it, it would not be outlandish uh, to think that you know he could knock Yushin Okami out here, or he could just put enough of a hurting on him that Yushin Okami feels like he's you know, or just instinctually drops back to his "I got to take this guy down and and lay on top of him," which against Jacare might not be such a great idea. I mean, that's one where I'm really interested because it feels like the UFC decided to make a fight just to see, like, all right. Is either one of these guys worth thinking about and talking about in the middleweight division going forward? Let's throw them in there together. Let them figure it out, even if it might totally suck. And yeah. hey, if it's on, it's on a Wednesday night on, on Fox Sports 1, what the hell else are you doing? <laughs> That's right. And, you know, you've also got uh, the, I guess there's, we don't have a name for the third fight from the top of the card. The Coco main event, the, the sub. Yeah. It's Se- better. Semi-wind-up. It's better if, we, if it doesn't have a name. Yeah. Let's not. Let's not try to encourage the, them. The Corn Nuts premier featured <laughs> fight. It's a it's a good spot for the flyweights though. I'm always bitching about how they won't put the flyweights on the main card, and here we've got a got we, two flyweight fights. We, in yeah, the main and card. this one this one should be a dandy with two guys in the in the flyweight top ten. You've got Juicier Formija, also named by his also known as by his actual name as uh, Juicier Da Silva. Uh, coming in to take on Joseph Benavidez. Uh, and and Formiga was a dude who was really, really highly rated uh, by, by people who were tracking the flyweight division when he came in to make his UFC debut. And, of course, he lost to John Dodson in that one, uh, but but has since bounced back and beat uh, Chris Carriasso. So it'll be interesting to see what he brings to the table because a lot of people think that he's got the goods. Um, and going in there... Obviously, against Joseph Benavidez, it doesn't get a lot tougher than that. No, that is a tough fight. And that, I think, is the uh, probably going to be the exception to the rule about uh, an American going down to Brazil uh, and, uh, and doing well. I think that that's, that's our, our best hope to chant USA uh, at home on the couch is, is Joe Benavidez. That, that's, a, that's a tough dude for anybody in the flyweight division to deal with. Uh, and, you know, got the, the backing of uh, top quote-unquote new coach. Uh, Dwayne Ludwig, so uh, plenty to be excited about there. But man, you look at this card, and you're right, the top three fights, all good fights. Um, kind of surprising for a midweek free fight card from Brazil. But God, does it drop off a cliff after that? that yeah, yeah, it really does. This uh, is the kind of one where you just want to, like, you know, set some kind of like alert on your phone to tell you when it's the last hour of the broadcast or something. Like wake me up when when Joe Benavidez is making his walk to the cage, kind of thing. You're telling me that you don't want to tune in to the to the preliminary card to see Keith Wisniewski fight Ivan George. Uh, that is what I'm telling you. Keith Wiz- Keith Wisniewski out of Portage, Indiana, the Polish connection. He's going to make a, the trip down there to Brazil. At least it's a name you can pronounce. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I nailed it. Uh, all right, well, Ben, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll, then we'll get out of here for this week. Just Saying Stuff, the part of the podcast where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not asked to back up or defend in any way because, you know, we're just saying stuff. Just two guys in a room, just saying stuff. No one's listening. No. It's just us, just talking. Just a couple of guys. Just going to keep it between us. <laughs> What's your Just Saying Stuff for this week? Chad, my Just Saying Stuff... I know you saw when the camera panned into the crowd in Milwaukee and a dude, uh, I guess wagging his tongue is the best way to describe it. Uh, oh, I've seen it. A, a I've guy seen it on the internet since. Clearly in town uh, for biker-related activities. 
there in the crowd having a, just a hell of a time uh, and really making the most of his few seconds of camera time, which was ill-advised on the USC production team part to begin with. I'm just saying, I think the CME may have found its mascot. Oh, wow. I'm just saying. Well, we've been looking for a while, so that's... That's good that, that we got that taken care of. Yeah. Now we, we can move on and we business. can put him on the website and then, you know, that's kind of our spirit animal right there. That does seem like he embodies our spirit, especially the part about riding a Harley. Yeah. Yeah. That's us. All right. Just wagging our tongues. You, you can't tell me, you can't tell me that that guy, uh, doesn't have a a van with a bumper sticker that says wine and diner 69er. You can't tell me that. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> uh, dressing up for him is throwing on his FBI t-shirt. <laughs> Female body inspector. You know, dressing up for him is putting on a shirt with sleeves. Ben, I don't want to bring us way down at the end of this uh, co-main event podcast, but as I'm sure you know, former WBO heavyweight boxing champion Tommy Morrison died this week at the age of 44. 44! After a long battle with... Uh, illness. And those of you who are old enough, no doubt remember that during the early 1990s, Morrison was one of the most famous fighters alive. He beat uh, George Foreman to win a piece of the heavyweight title, and he starred opposite Sylvester Stallone in Rocky V. Which, thanks to uh, the existence of Rocky Balboa, the subsequent movie, is no longer considered the worst Rocky movie. That's right. In other words, Morrison had a career that was plodding along more or less in the same trajectory as the top stars of today's mixed martial arts world wish their careers would go. Uh, he had championships and movies and crossover success. And then in 1996, Tommy Morrison tested positive for HIV, and that kind of began a long, slow grind into obscurity and, uh, frankly, more and more fantastical claims in the media and what seemed like sort of mental instability. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a lesson in that because some guys are just going to make good choices and some guys are going to make bad choices. But my God, man, to go from heavyweight champion of the world at age 24 to dead 20 years later, it just as a reminder to me that let's never forget the terrible toll that these lifestyles can inflict on some people. And let's never think that the people that we are cheering for now can't wind up like Tommy Morrison because they totally can. I'm just saying. That is fucking depressing, man. I'm just saying, man. Yeah. You're just saying we should all just sit in a dark room and listen to Morrissey. <laughs> that's what you're just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to wrap up all the stuff that happened at this UFC Fight Night 28 card. Until then, we're done. We're through. We're out. You know, I feel like... Uh, 